Well, at this point in our evening, we're going to transition into our time in God's Word. So if you brought a Bible with you, and I hope you did, I encourage you to turn, open your Bible, and meet me over at Psalm 32. <clears throat> over to Psalm 32. The title of our message tonight is Freed from the Weight of Guilt. Freed from the Weight of Guilt. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, then you know from your own life or from working with other people the kind of weight that guilt can produce in a person's life. And I can safely say that there are a few things in life that are more paralyzing, and there are a few things in life that are more debilitating, or there are a few things in life that are more suffocating than to walk through life with a guilty, tormented conscience. It's a true story of a young man, a 15-year-old track star by the name of Robert Garth. Robert was born into a poor family in the city of Detroit. However, those circumstances didn't stop him from becoming one of the most talented, decorated young sprinters in the entire country. As one writer noted, his young body was built for speed. He could run like the wind. And that talent bought him a ticket to the Junior Olympic tryouts in the summer of 1968. Well, as the day drew near for him to leave for the tryouts, Robert's thoughts took him in a direction that would have a significant impact on the rest of his life. The night before leaving for the Junior Olympic trials, Robert sat before the television thinking of ways that he could make some quick cash before the upcoming events. Well, unfortunately, the idea that came to his mind wasn't a good one. In fact, it was one that would later torment him for many, many years in his life. You see, there was a warehouse where Robert worked, and he had done a few odd jobs in the past as a young man, and Joseph Mosseri, the man who paid him and always seemed to carry around a wad of cash with him, was usually alone in the warehouse early in the mornings. We can see where the story is headed, can't you? Early the next morning, Robert snuck into the warehouse and waited behind a door for his boss to enter into the building, and when Joseph Mosseri came walking into the warehouse... Robert struck him over the head with an object, knocking him to the ground, and then pulled out a total of $67 from his pockets. Well, as the story unfolds, Robert left the scene, and he went on to compete in the Junior Olympic trials. But what Robert didn't realize was the magnitude of the crime he had committed on that early Wednesday morning. You see, the blow to the head didn't just knock the man out as Robert had intended It actually ended his life. And when Robert returned home and realized the nature of the crime he committed, his life plummeted into a downward spiral. As the story goes on, Robert went on to graduate from high school. He got married. He had a child. But things were never the same again. He tried to put the past behind him, but his mind wouldn't allow that to happen. Well, eventually, Robert turned to alcohol to find relief from his painful memories of the past. However, as in any situation where a person looks to alcohol to uh, deal with painful memories and, and to deal with life's problems, it only made matters worse. After three years of marriage, his wife packed, his ba- or packed her bags, took their daughter, and moved away. And the next several years of his life only grew worse and worse year after year after year. And that continued until one day, Fifteen years after he had taken the life of Joseph Mosseri, Robert decided to turn himself in and confess to the crime. And so he did that. 
And he went to the local police station and he confessed to the crime. And as you can imagine, the officer whom he confessed the crime to was overwhelmed. He didn't know what to do with it. I mean, here was an unresolved 15-year-old case and a man off the streets comes walking in confessing to the crime. Well, in the preceding days, Robert was convicted of second-degree murder and he was sentenced to prison. And while in prison, he was handed a copy of the Bible and as he read through it, guess what happened? It changed his life. And it was in God's word that he found some help for the enormous guilt that weighed on him for so many years in his life. Well, some years later, Robert Garth made the following statement. He said, quote, My time in prison was easy compared to the 15 years I lived with that crime in my mind. Nothing they could ever do to me, even incarcerating me for the rest of my life, could measure up to the imprisonment of my own guilt during the 15 years of hiding my own sin. Robert Garth was finally freed from the weight of guilt, and the result was peace, a clear conscience, and joy. Well, there's a testimony of another man whose genuine repentance and confession of sin produced similar results, and the individual I have in mind is none other than King David. To see firsthand the personal lessons he learned regarding guilt and confession and forgiveness. Follow along as I read through Psalm 32, beginning in verse 1. Psalm 32, David writes this, a psalm of David, a contemplation. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. For this cause everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with the songs of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Well, if you've ever read through the book of Psalms, then you know how much variety this one book contains. For example, there are praise psalms. There are lament psalms. There are creation psalms. There are messianic psalms. There are thanksgiving psalms. There are imprecatory psalms. And the list continues. You see, there's quite a bit of variety within this one book. And this particular psalm we just read, Psalm 32, falls into the category of a penitential psalm. In fact, it's one of seven penitential or confessional psalms in the entire book. And two of the seven that most Christians are familiar with are Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. And those two are what you might call the confessional giants in the book of Psalms. And interestingly, both are closely related and that they are both connected to the Bathsheba episode recorded back in 2 Samuel chapter 11. 
And here's how the, the, the three passages relate as far as a, a timeline goes. 2 Samuel 11 records the sin of David. Psalm 51 records the repentance of David. That's what pa- Pastor Jeremy read just a few moments ago. And Psalm 32 records the lessons David learned while looking back over the entire situation. Let me say that again. 2 Samuel 11 records the sin of David. Psalm 51 records the repentance of David. And Psalm 32 records the lessons David learned while looking back on the entire situation. And so with that as background, let's dive into the text, beginning with verse 1. David writes this, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, And blessed is a man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The first thing that we see in this chapter is David's announcement of joy. David uses the word blessed or happy two times in these verses to describe his overwhelming joy of God's forgiveness. Now, I think it's important to understand what type of forgiveness David is speaking of here. As many of you know, there are two types or or two categories of forgiveness that a believer can experience. There is positional forgiveness and there's relational forgiveness. Positional forgiveness refers to the forgiveness we experience at the moment of salvation where we are forgiven and where we're cleansed from all our sin. And this is the kind of forgiveness Paul had in mind when he wrote in Colossians 1.13, God has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. This kind of forgiveness is immediately complete and never needs to be sought again. Relational forgiveness, on the other hand, refers to the forgiveness we experience in our ongoing walk with the Lord. This is, this is the type of forgiveness or the category of forgiveness that John had in mind. When he wrote in 1 John 1, 9, he said, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Positional forgiveness refers to a one-time reality that takes place at the moment of salvation, whereas relational forgiveness refers to an ongoing reality that takes place in the process of sanctification. You see, even though we're granted positional forgiveness at the moment of salvation, we still sin from time to time, don't we? And that sin doesn't end our relationship with the Lord, but it does put a barrier there. And therefore, to restore intimacy in our relationship with the Lord, we're called to confess our sins whenever we recognize them. And so with that as a framework, the question is, hey, what type of forgiveness does David have in mind in verses 1 and 2? Hey, which, is it positional or is it relational? And I believe the answer is relational forgiveness. Remember, the context of this passage is David's reflection of the events involving his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. And though David's sin was forgiven in a positional sense prior to the events unfolding, his grievous sin impacted his relationship with the Lord. And therefore, as a means to restore fellowship, David confessed his sin and admitted his wrongdoing. And what was God's response to David's confession? How did the Lord respond when David repented, when he confessed his sin to the Lord? The answer is immediate forgiveness. How do we know that? Well, back in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we're told that when David admitted his sin, the very first words out of Nathan's mouth were this, the Lord has put away your sin. That's amazing when you stop and think about it, isn't it? 
By the time David confessed his sin, he had been holding on to it for a period of months. And yet at the moment he confessed his sin, God immediately forgave him for what he had done. It's no wonder that David was so overwhelmed with joy as he contemplated the mercy and the forgiveness of God. In fact, if you look at the first two verses again, you'll notice a number of ways in which David describes the Lord's forgiveness. Look, David could have just said, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and just left it at that. However, instead of using only one term to describe God's forgiveness, he used three terms. He used the term forgiven, covered, and not imputing iniquity. Each of those terms, though describing the same concept, has a unique meaning. For example, the Hebrew word translated forgiven literally means to be lifted or to be carried away. And of course, a great verse that highlights this facet of God's forgiveness is found in Psalm 103. Turn there if you would. Uh, Hold your place here at Psalm 32. Just turn to the right to Psalm 103. Over to Psalm 103. And notice what the psalmist writes in verse, beginning in verse 11. Psalm 103, verse 11, it says, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Look, when we confess our sins, the Lord, in a sense, he lifts them. And he takes them, he carries them as far away as they can go. Now back to Psalm 32. Back to Psalm 32. The next term David uses to describe God's forgiveness is the word covered. This word could also be translated to hide or to conceal. When we confess a sin to the Lord, the Lord hides our sin. He, he, in a sense, throws a blanket over our sin and he buries the offense as quickly as as possible. The third term, or in this case phrase, that David uses to highlight God's forgiveness is the phrase does not impute iniquity. The idea behind this phrase is that once we confess our sin to the Lord, he doesn't continue to hold it against us. In other words, he doesn't continue to bring it up and say, hey, do you remember when you did that? Or hey, do you remember when you said that to so-and-so? Instead, we're told in his word that once we seek the Lord's forgiveness, he moves past it. In fact, in Isaiah 43, 25, the Lord himself said this. He said, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions, and I will not remember what? Your sins. When we confess our sin to the Lord, he doesn't continue to dwell on it. He doesn't continue to remind us of it. He doesn't continue to hold it against us. Instead, his forgiveness is deliberate and it's gracious, and it's immediate. By the way, do those qualities describe your forgiveness of others? When you forgive other people, do you make the conscious choice not to dwell on the offense or remind the person of the offense or hold a grudge against the individual who offended you? You know, it's amazing how our forgiveness tends to vary depending on which side of the equation we're on. Isn't that right? As one man put it, he said this, quote, when we are on the receiving end of mercy, we naturally esteem forgiveness as one of the highest of all virtues. But when we are the aggrieved party, when we are the offended party, forgiveness often seems a gross violation of justice. Can you relate to that? I know I can. 
When we're the guilty party, we long for mercy and we long for grace. However, when we are the offended party or when we're the ones against whom a a wrong has been committed, we want the other person to pay the price. As we consider the Lord's forgiveness, it's important that we remember Paul's words in Ephesians 4.32 where he said, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. How? Even as God and Christ forgave you. In other words, our standard for how we're to forgive others isn't to be contingent upon others. It isn't contingent on others. It's not contingent on how nice they are, how likable they are, how they respond to us. No, our standard for forgiveness is the example that was set by God himself. And so in the first two verses of Psalm 32, David announces his joy. However, that joy wasn't always present in David's life. Notice what he writes next in verse 3. He says, when I kept silent, my bones grew old though, uh, through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Here in these verses, David looks back and recalls the turmoil and the spiritual distress he experienced when his sin was left unconfessed. When David sinned with Bathsheba, we know that many months had passed before he owned up to his sin and sought the Lord's forgiveness. In fact, Scripture records that Bathsheba went through her entire pregnancy and gave birth to a son before Nathan came and confronted him about his sin. During those months of disobedience, David tells us that his life was a complete wreck. It was a mess. In verse 3, David said, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. David tells us that when he chose to hold on to his sin for all those months, the weight of his guilt began to affect him physically. The lack of peace and the lack of a clear conscience literally made him sick. In verse 4, David went on to say, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. The Hebrew phrase at the end of this verse is literally translated, My juices were sapped as in the drought of summer. Listen, the weight of David's sin took a major toll on his life, both physically and emotionally. It it totally sapped him of both his physical strength and his inner strength. Unless you think that was an awful thing that David had to go through during those months months in his life, in reality, it was the best thing that could have ever happened to him. You say, what do you mean? Well, let me explain it this way. Guilt in our spiritual lives works a lot like pain with our physical bodies. When our bodies experience pain as a result of a a sickness or as a result of some kind of injury, though the experience is uncomfortable, it drives us to find the solution to our problem. In a similar way, guilt, though it is uncomfortable, it is the best thing that we can experience as a result of our sin because it drives us to correct the real issue when we might otherwise not. Guilt is God's gift to the unrepentant believer because it aims to draw the person back into sweet fellowship with himself. And that, of course, is what God wanted for David. He wanted David to feel the weight of his sin so he would humble himself and so that he would repent and so that he would be restored to the Lord. And by God's grace, that is exactly the kind of outcome that unfolded from the situation. Now, before we move on to the text, I think it's important that we pause to really consider the effects that David's sin had in his life. Think about it. One passing moment of pleasure led to months and months of misery. 
When David committed his horrific sin with Bathsheba, I'm sure he didn't envision all the turmoil and all the guilt and all the anguish his sin would eventually produce. But isn't that how sin works? Sin is so deceitful. And the reason it's so deceitful is that it promises pleasure and it promises satisfaction all the while hiding the terrible consequences that are sure to come and are sure to follow down the road. Sin, though it might look good, sin, though it might look satisfying in the moment, always pays awful, awful dividends. And we should never forget that. David's sin produced awful consequences in his life. However, here's the good news. David didn't allow those consequences to prevent him from turning back to the Lord. Look at verse 5. David writes, I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. After months of holding on to his sin, David eventually broke. To see the account firsthand, turn back with me, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Back to 2 Samuel chapter 12. We'll go back to Psalm 32 in just a few moments. But just to see the account of David's confession, 2 Samuel chapter 12. And follow along as I read through verses 1 through 13. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. It says this in verse 1. Of chapter 12. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children, and ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Verse 5, so David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Verse 7, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had not, and if that had been too little, I would also have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. The first thing that stands out to me in David's confession is that he didn't blame anybody else but himself. In other words, David didn't make any excuses for his sin. He didn't say that it was God's fault for allowing him to enter into such a situation, knowing full well the Lord could have prevented the situation if he so chose to. 
David didn't say that it was his wife's fault for neglecting him, neglecting him of the intimacy that he so desired. And neither did he blame Bathsheba for bathing in a location where he could see her in full view. Instead of blaming God or people or his circumstances, David acknowledged his sin completely and took full responsibility for it. A second thing that stands out to me in David's response is that he didn't become defensive when Nathan pointed out his sin. He didn't say, well, who are you to come and talk to me about this? Or who are you to point uh, this wrong out in my life? Well, after all, you're not so perfect. Unfortunately, those kind of responses aren't too uncommon when addressing a person's sin. However, David didn't respond that way. David committed two horrifying sins, but when he was confronted with them, he broke. Now back to Psalm 32. Back to Psalm 32. As you're turning there, you know, one of the questions people often ask is, hey, how could David have been a man after God's own heart if he committed such horrible sin? Have you ever wondered that before? Hey, how could David be looked to as such a godly man and as such a godly example after committing such horrific sin? And I believe the answer is, even after having committed such horrible sin, David's godliness shined through in how he modeled true biblical repentance. In other words, David's godliness came through in how he responded to his sin. I mean, just stop and think of all the ways David modeled godliness in response to his sin. They're countless. In fact, here's just a handful I jotted down as I was preparing for this sermon. Number one, David provided an example of taking personal ownership over sin. David provided an example of taking personal ownership over sin. We looked at this just a moment ago. When confronted with his sin, David didn't blame shift. David didn't make excuses. He didn't rationalize his sin. Instead, when confronted with his sin, David admitted his wrong and took personal and full ownership over his wrongdoing. Number two, Another area that we see David being an example in his response is that David provided an example of true brokenness and true repentance. In other words, David wasn't just sorry that he got caught. He wasn't just sorry because of the the consequences he would experience for his actions. No, David's sorrow produced a genuine repentance that led to true lasting change in his life. Number three, another area that David is an example is that David provided an example of accepting the consequences of his sin without becoming bitter or angry at God. David provided an example of accepting the consequences of his sin without becoming bitter or angry at God. In fact, in Psalm 51, David clearly affirmed his guilt so that if and when God judged him, God wouldn't appear as unjust or unfair. You see, David didn't want, he didn't want the Lord to look bad if and when the Lord decided to judge him for his sin. So he admitted his guilt in public for all to see so no one would question God's fairness if God decided to punish David for his sin. What a godly perspective. What a godly perspective to have about one's own sin. And then number four, another area in which David serves as an example And his uh, response to his sin is that David provided an example, number four, of getting back up after falling. David provided an example of getting back up after falling uh, falling into sin. And number five, closely related to number four, David provided an example that it's never too late to start doing the right thing. As I think about David's life, 
I think of Proverbs 24, 16, which says, For though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. In other words, sometimes the only difference between a righteous person and an unrighteous person is that a righteous person has learned to get back up on his feet after falling into sin. And that, of course, is the kind of example that we see in David. Listen, David was knocked down by his sin, but he didn't stay down. He eventually got back up on his feet, and he continued his race with joy. In verse 6, we see in Psalm 32, David writes this, For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Let's stop here for a moment. Here in the first half of verse 6, David draws an inference from what he has discussed in verses 1 through 5. And he basically says this, Hey, in light of my experience, And in light of all the lessons I learned regarding sin and guilt and the blessings of forgiveness, be quick to run to the Lord. In other words, David tells us, hey, don't put off confession. Don't pretend the situation didn't happen. Don't, if you're in sin, don't delay in making things right. Instead, if there's any sin that's created a barrier, any sin that's created a breach, be quick to be restored in your relationship with the Lord. You know, if there's one lesson you and I can learn from David's experience, it's this. Undealt with sin only brings about misery, while owning up to it can can bring about great blessing and great joy. Hey, which would you rather have? Which would you rather have? David's comments here in the beginning of verse 6 reminds me of the exhortation In Hebrews 3.12, where the author of Hebrews said this, he said, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Look, that's the same idea as what the psalmist is saying right here in Psalm 32. Hey, don't put off your transgressions. Don't wait to deal with your sin. Deal with it today before your heart becomes hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You know, as we talked about a few moments ago, sin is so deceitful, isn't it? And as you're in it, sin just says, don't, don't turn back now. It's, this is when it's getting good. It's, it's just starting to get good. It's, you can confess it later. You can, you can deal with it later. And that's what happens over time as we, as we go without confessing sin. Our hearts become harder and harder through the deceitfulness of sin. But what the author of Hebrews says, similar to what David says, is, hey, deal with your sin today. Deal with it today before your heart becomes hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And in verse 6, it continues. It says, Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. What does David mean when he says, Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him? Well, given that the context is about prayer and confession of sin, it seems what David is saying is this. When you are in sin, the obstacles to confessing it can seem daunting at times or overwhelming at times, depending on the nature of the sin. I mean, just think about David's situation. For David to acknowledge his sin meant that he had to admit to adultery and he had to admit to murder. And no doubt the gravity of those offenses were, uh, they probably overwhelmed him at times. However, despite the gravity of the offense, the divine promise is that God will grant you the grace through the difficulty of owning up to your own sin. In other words, there's no circumstance of confession too great or no circumstance of repentance too great where God's sustaining grace isn't greater. Beloved, isn't the Lord so good? 
Not only does he call us to confess, uh, not only does he call us to confess our own sin, knowing that living in harmony, uh, living in harmony with him is the best thing for us, but he also promises his grace to sustain us when the obstacles of obedience appear too overwhelming. The Lord is so good. And undoubtedly, that is what prompted David's words of praise in verse 7 when he said, You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. When David turned to the Lord for restoration, when David turned to the Lord for forgiveness, he found the Lord to be a refuge and a hiding place in the midst of all of his troubles. Well, as the passage unfolds, David writes in verse 8, he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. In other words, the psalmist says this, hey, pay attention to what I have to say because what I'm about to communicate is extremely important. You want to live life wisely? You want to live life in a way that honors the Lord? Then you need to listen closely to what I'm about to say. In verse 9, he says this, do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near to you. What David is saying here is this. Hey, don't be stubborn when it comes to your sin. Don't be like a horse or like a mule, which needs to be pushed and prodded to move in the direction it's supposed to go. Instead, the encouragement is to deal humbly with our sin right away and be willing to admit our wrongdoings before the Lord. I'm sure all of you can relate with me that repentance isn't always an easy step. Isn't that right? In fact, oftentimes it's really hard because we have to swallow our pride and we have to admit that we are wrong in this situation. However, though it's a difficult step, it's always easiest to do it right away rather than force God's hand of discipline in our lives. In verse 10, the psalmist goes on to say, David says, many, many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Here, David tells us that God always reserves his mercy for those who trust in him and for those who follow in his ways. To be more specific, God is merciful to the one who's truly broken over his sin. He is merciful to the one who takes full responsibility for his actions. He is merciful to the one who is humble and is concerned about the Lord's reputation and how his sin, his or her sin, affects and impacts the Lord's glory, the Lord's reputation. And he's merciful to the one who expresses a willingness to do whatever is necessary to make things right. As it says in James chapter 4, verse 10, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to who? To the humble. And that's exactly what David is saying right here in verse 10. In verse 11, he says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Listen, the only way a person can be glad in the Lord and shout with songs of joy is if there are no issues or no barriers in their relationship with the Lord. And so how about you? How about you? As you look at your own life, as you evaluate your own life, is there some sin in your life that you've been holding on to? Is there any sin in your life that's created a, a barrier between you and Jesus or that's created a barrier, barrier between you and, and, and a friend, between you and your spouse, between you and a, a, a sibling or, or, or a good friend? If so, don't put it off. Don't ignore it. Don't, don't pretend the issue doesn't exist. Instead, you need to listen to David's counsel 
and repent of it and turn to the Lord. Would you pray with me? And Father, we do thank you for the timelessness of your word. And that though it was written hundreds and hundreds of years ago, it is still so practical, so applicable to our lives today. And Lord, as we've just considered this precious psalm, Psalm 32, Lord, we'd ask that you would teach us to be a people who learn how to deal with our sin. Help us not to be stubborn. Help us not to be hard-hearted. Help us not to, to resist the input of your word or the input of your people who speak truth into our lives. Instead, when confronted with sin, help us to be humble like David was and help us to keep short accounts in our walk with you. And Lord, we're grateful that even when we do sin and when we do slip and fall at times, you are a God who is quick to forgive and quick to restore. I think of what the psalmist said later on when he said, for you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all who call upon you. Lord, help us to remember those truths whenever we fall or, or, or whenever the obstacles of repentance seem too difficult or too overwhelming to follow through with. We pray these things together in Jesus' precious and holy and exalted name. Amen.